we get stories back from counselors and, and nurses in, in some of the schools that we support of girls coming in for the talk. They're, they're coming in, you know, sort of with their eyes cast down and sometimes whispering to each other and just having a look of embarrassment and dread. And then they get some amount of initial education. They're shown the moon time bags. They're all distributed. You know, they all get a bag shown where other supplies are available to them. The ideal situation, and we, we can never tell schools or community-based organizations we help how to do their work, but we do talk about what we see as best practices, which includes having these supplies available in the, the public restrooms at the school or organization where a student can take what's needed whenever it's needed and have a, then have identified for them a trusted adult or adults to whom they can go for help. And by the end of these classes, we hear the girls are happy and the usual question is, is every kid in the school that's gonna have their period gonna get one of these noontime bags? And the answer that we always say, yes, you should say yes, they will. Um, we will do what we need to do to get that to happen. You know, it's been interesting in terms of sort of curiosity from the point of view of the students themselves. So we always encourage the educators to talk about us and to say where these products and bags are coming from. And there's often a lot of questions about, well, why would people do this? They don't know us that leads to a very interesting and good conversation about them being part of a bigger community of, you know, of, of a whole. And what we've also seen is more students actually reaching out to us through their counselors for help. So on the initial request for assistance to a school, we're starting to see that, where those students are taking the initiative I think out of the same kind of incredulity and anger that you know I had at the beginning about why are these products not in our bathrooms where other things that we need are like soap and toilet paper, paper towels. How can this be? Like who made those rules? Which is a really excellent question to ask. Thanks for joining us today. This is Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I remember the Facebook post. It was the summer of 2017, and Eva Carney shared a link to a Huffington Post article by Eleanor Goldberg entitled, why many Native American girls skip school when they have their periods. Eva was incredulous. Now, Eva holds elected office as a member of the legislature of the Shawnee, Oklahoma-based citizen Potawatomi Nation and works as a human rights lawyer. So her attention to indigenous peoples and basic human dignity were not at all surprising. But where the article propelled her, where that sense of purpose she found in its damning paragraphs has driven her, that, if not surprising, 
is certainly a story worth sharing. Within a year, she'd founded the Quek Society. Quek, spelled K-W-E-K, means women in the Potawatomi language. So the Women's Society. And she was hard at work shining a light on and addressing menstrual and other inequities in Native communities. The Quek Society provides menstrual pads, tampons, liners, and underwear, along with educational materials and moon time bags filled with period supplies to Indigenous students and communities needing these expensive menstrual supplies. As of today, they've distributed more than 1.3 million period supplies, worked with literally about 100 partner organizations, and put more than 15,000 moon time bags and books into the hands of young women in Native communities. So I ask you, where does your curiosity go with that? I start thinking about the transformative power of having been open to new information, asking ourselves, what don't I know that I should? About if and how we decide to show up as our best selves in the face of new information. Again, asking respectfully, how can I be helpful? I think about taboo and sexism and breathtaking alienation. And how can it be that a universal life experience would move from being a celebration of power to a source of desperation and shame. We should all be asking, why should this be so? And what am I going to do about it? So today, it's an exploration with Eva Carney about curiosity very much as applied. Curiosity, in this case, in the service of ending period poverty. It's, it's probably like learning a new word. You know, you learn a new word and then you see it everywhere. You know, I think also getting comfortable with talking about periods. I mean, how many times have we used that word today, Lynn? But, you know, one of my former uh, law firm partners ran into him a couple of years ago. He's got like four or five kids. Several of them are girls. And he asked me what I was doing now. And I said, well, I'm, you know, doing work with the Quack Society and we get period supplies to indigenous students and their peers. And he said, like, what kind of supplies? And I don't think that that's that unusual. And so, you know, you walk into the drugstore and you'll see feminine hygiene aisle. And so, you know, those are fairly euphemistic words that think are suggesting that somehow having a period needs to be addressed with hygiene, with, you know, better hygiene. So the just the the idea of of just being more attuned to these issues and understanding that you know that it's it's much more common than you might expect and there are you know there are big ways to help and there are small ways to help. So the statistics are are just even more maddening than they were when you know I was alerted to this issue in 2017, as you mentioned. Now, what we're seeing is a suggestion that it's as many as one in three teenagers who don't have the supplies that they need. And so that then cascades into issues of missing school and, you know, and missing out just on basic activities of daily life. And there's also huge health implications for those that might be using tampons, 
more than more, you know, for more hours than they should, or perhaps even okay. using them multiple times, which is happening, or, you know, or using other types of supplies to get by, you know, every month when they've got their periods. So I was, I was really incensed. <laughs> and, and I, I actually pretty almost immediately realized that this was not just about native people because it was clear that this is a poverty issue. And then my thought in, in moving forward was, well, you know, I, I did a little research and I found out that there was a sprinkling of, of different organizations that were supporting some menstruators in poverty. So folks who, for example, were unhomed or folks who were incarcerated. And so there's still, you know, were still huge problems there. But there were groups that were targeting certain populations. And what I quickly discovered is that there was, I think, one group that was focusing on one Native community on a reservation. And I didn't find others. And then I, I went to a talk by Jennifer Weiss-Wolf. She's written a book called uh, Periods Gone Public which was, you know, very celebrated. I think this was early 2018. And it reviewed period stigma, period issues around the world and included a focus on the United States, but not a word about Native communities. And so I asked her the question in the Q&A about her experience with Native communities. And she had no experience. She looked at me blankly. And so that really solidified for me the fact that somebody needed to step up. And I also was informed by my receipt of many requests from native focused nonprofits for help to especially reservation folks, you know, please help these poor, impoverished native people. They are going to freeze if you do not send us $50 for oil or for firewood or for blankets for these poor, poor people. And I, I really wanted there to be a positive message that was conveyed along with any gift of supplies. So, I mean, on your theme of curiosity, my thought was, can I do this in a way that is well-received, that is accepted? Am I going to be able to reach out to certain groups to assist when they don't know me? They probably will be very suspicious about what I have to offer, um, especially as a startup. And we're still a startup, even six years in. So that was those were my thoughts was, you know, were can this can this be an organization that is inclusive, that has, you know, in with its indigenous roots, because as you noted, I am indigenous. Can it, can it have a certain amount of credibility? And how can we communicate with those who would most likely want to help these students in a way that made them appreciate how qualified, how lovely, how intelligent, how successful, how beautiful these students are, not, you know, oh, these poor students, let us please help them. And so, you know, and yes, and I'm using an I, it's not my nonprofit, it is a, non, a public nonprofit. I did start it. We have lots of people that help, but 
but I did name it. <laughs> and I named it the Quack Society. You know, society, kind of an old timey term, but the idea being everyone who participates in however, in whatever manner they participate are part of the organization. They're, they're anybody that gives anybody that sends the information out to other people. They're all members. They're all participating, you know, and it's going to, it's going to take all of us to kind of move, move forward on this issue. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by Eva Carney, founder and CEO of the Quek Society, which is dedicated to ending period poverty. I've invited Eva to reflect on how curiosity might support that mission by helping us tap into everything from empathy to relationship building, connecting people with purpose and innovations and finding solutions to the challenges that confront us all. I think among the reasons that we've continued to attract donors, which of course is critical to the mission of any nonprofit, is that we do make people feel connected, emotional connection. And in fact, our web designer the other day said, about all of our social media posting, you're you're showing you're you're showing your efforts, you're showing your impact, but you're not telling them the story anymore about how much need there is. Oh, interesting. And I said, well, that that that's probably true because we want to you know invite people to participate, and we're now beyond the you know here's the problem to be part of this fun solution. So one of the things that I you know think has has really been a delight to the people that that are working with us on this issue are our moontime bags. Cotton bags that are sewn by supporters. Um, and they're generally, you know, we call them our aunties, sort of the older, older women that still know how to operate sewing machines. But we have, you know, one young guy, a Baha'i gentleman who has you know, his students helping and he makes, not only does he make the Moontime bags, but he dyes the fabric and wow. he even irons in connection with making these things. That's crazy. You can see it on, on TikTok if you want. But so, but these Moontime bags, they're sewn by people in community and often stuffed by them or we'll put, you know, we'll stuff them and they, they fit a couple of pads and a couple of liners. And we put a celebration message in there on a card that's part of a Joy Harjo poem about the moon. And then we have contact information for our website. So mostly the kids get these so kids can go and look at the educational information on them. We, we consider it a gift and we give that particularly to students who are on the cusp of puberty with the idea that it will connect them to the educational resources that they're going to get in their schools. And we hope that they are, you know, are introduced at an early time so that the students are ready when they have their periods. But I think all of that, that whole discussion about the Moontime bag and what they're, what they're used for and who makes them resonates with so many people because a lot of the folks that we get funds from, they're, they're women who, are, who still have their periods or remember having their periods, their grandmothers. They're folks that know how important it is to be ready when you have your period. Then the people that are making them, I think, really feel as if they are part of a community of givers. 
So I think that has been helpful. I think also, you know, we certainly get a fair amount of our funding from in other indigenous people, although that's not exclusively the case, you know, and so that's just sort of on the funding side. I think, you know, we do have a number of family foundations and others who are who are donating to us. And I think for them, the value has really been in finding and, you know, a BIPOC led organization that now has a footprint. Right. So I think that that over the last two years, I think, has been particularly helpful in terms of our growth. Eva has wonderful stories about what comes of reaching out with thoughtful and sometimes surprising questions. I was recently invited to be part of a panel of experts. Quote, quote, unquote, that for me. The conversation was about Arctic periods. Arctic periods. And it was held at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. I thought to myself, you know, I'm happy to talk about the Quex Society and, and showcase our work and be part of this great panel. But we don't really even help anyone that's anywhere near the Arctic Circle. So I thought, Alaska. And I just got on the phone and I started calling schools. I did a little research online and I called a couple of schools in Alaska. Did I ever think I was going to call up? To, well, may I speak to the nurse's office and find out who is the person that would, you know, I could talk to about sex education in your school or period education and period products. You know, so the first phone call was someone that said, well, you know, I think we have what we need <laughs> kind of thing. But one of my friends just took on a role as the counselor in charge of period education for third to fifth graders in the school in Sitka, Alaska. Could I put you all in contact? That was phenomenal because here this was she's just a, a wonderful educator, really committed, wasn't quite sure what how she would go about putting together, you know, her syllabus and what materials she would use. We offer books that anybody can buy on Amazon. I mean, we've done some vetting of them, you know, books for boys and for girls about puberty. And of course we had the Moontime bags and products. And she just embraced this in a really terrific way. Would I've ever expected to have that conversation or to have that interaction and really be useful to someone who was doing something that was extremely useful? No, but you know, it did provide that opportunity. I am always struck that a concern, a curiosity that arises around one issue in one community will take on much broader implications, opening our eyes to universal and systemic needs. One thing I want to really stress is that you know, for anybody that's listening to this is that you don't need to know what's going on in a reservation community to understand or to make a difference in your own community because period poverty is going on. You know, I'm sitting in Arlington. It is happening in Arlington, Virginia. It's happening under all of our noses. I would posit that any student that is eligible for free or reduced price lunch in the public school system is potentially at risk for period poverty, as is that student's you know, relatives who also menstruate because the products are so expensive 
even when they are available through a big box store or, you know, online through Amazon or Walmart or, you know, any of the other places where you can, you can buy them online. It is definitely made worse in more rural places. And certainly there has been systemic discrimination against indigenous peoples in this country and also systemic attempts to keep indigenous pockets of indigenous people in the most remote areas of this country. So that is that certainly makes it all the more problematic. And if you don't have a good internet connection, you know, if your family only get gets paid once a month and, you know, you need to go into town into the, you know, to the the closest town to buy the supplies for the month and the money doesn't go as far as it needs to go to cover supplies. Well, you know, that those are the those are the students and communities that we are most interested in helping. But we have really moved on to assisting students and community members who are living in suburbs and even living in cities at this point. But the the city, the schools that are in the cities are so they have so many students that it is mind-boggling to figure out how to help. You know, huge populations like Tulsa School System that's asked us for help, Tulsa Public Schools, or Flagstaff, smaller than Tulsa, but still a lot of students and a lot of students in need. And the only, you know, the only solace that I have in thinking about that and not being able to help them is hoping that there are going to be local people who start to understand that this is an issue and are able to mobilize and use their local resources to assist. And I had to ask, did she see this coming? Did she ever imagine that her interest would expand her life and skills in so many ways? No, (laughs) no, no, I did not. Well, and in fact, I really, you know, well, I'm saying, oh, yes. So I decided to get started. I mean, I didn't actually think that I had the skills that were needed to like form the organization. I think I was less concerned about doing the work than in coming up with the structure and sort of all the doing all of the the, the legal pieces. And in fact, I sought help various places, the different nonprofit assistance organizations and things. I, I wound up getting some really terrific advice and even some templates and things from another organization that operates in the Northern Virginia area called BRAWS, B-R-A-W-S. So they had started, you know, some years before we did and were focused on BRAWS for women in homeless shelters. They were also collecting period supplies and they had some serviceable articles of incorporation and bylaws and other things that were certainly inspirational. Anyway, I was thinking about this the other day. I've learned a lot about indigenous teachings and culture and communities from doing this work and have met and really count as friends quite a few people that I never would have met, especially um, women operating, you know, doing their work for the Navajo Nation, um, out particularly out in New Mexico, because we've had the opportunity to go out and visit a number of the schools that we've been supporting in a number of times. But really getting to the point of sharing a lot of more 
closely held details about certain ceremonies and practices and beliefs, um, you know, most of which I'd never share through the Quack Society, but they are very in informative, you know, as we're working with different communities. And I just love being able to identify and disseminate some traditional teachings about periods and, and being a woman that we now have up on our website. I've loved being able to collect those and from those discern the common theme, which actually you sounded a bit in your introduction, which is one of sort of the power of women and the celebration of women. And also that in a lot of these traditional teachings, it's a very public thing to have your period, at least to have your first period, which again, you know, as we talked about, you know, this idea of, of period shame and keeping things secret, I would never say that there is one Native American teaching. There is no, there's nothing is monolithic and there's so many different traditions and, and communities, but across the, the teachings that we've identified and gathered, that's been the theme because it's the community that comes together to support the young woman. You know, certainly it's, you know, most of these ceremonial weeks or, you know, activities surrounding a first period involve the matriarchs, involve mother, grandmother, aunties, women in the community being with the girl and teaching the girl, you know, and helping the girl talking about the future but the end is a community celebration and all all people are are invited to that you've been listening to choose to be curious conversations about curiosity and work and life you can find this and all my previous episodes on my website at choosetobecurious.com. Hope you follow me there and on social media at Choose to Be Curious. Many thanks to Eva Carney. Links to the Quex Society on my website. Today's music includes Easement by The Bulwark, Thirteens also by The Bulwark, and Great is the Contessa by Contessa, all via Blue Dot Sessions. Over the years of watching Eva at work, I've admired and been very moved by how she allowed new information to deeply inform not only her thoughts, but her actions as well. It is, after all, the whole point of choosing to be curious. I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. <laughs>